Let's pray together. And Lord, that's our desire this morning that uh, wherever we happen to be on that spectrum, whether you are giving to us these days and the sun is shining down on us in a land of plenty, or whether right now you are taking away or have taken away from us and the road is more marked by suffering and there is pain in our offering. Lord, I pray that uh, you who know each one of our hearts and know where we are on that spectrum, that for each one of us you will enable us, teach us during this service and strengthen us by grace to be able to choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we rejoice in the fact that the glory and the name of Christ rests upon us today. Thank you that we are your people. We have gathered in response to your calling and your initiative in our lives. And as you have drawn us to this most holy encounter, we pray now that you will speak to us, both in, uh, through your words as we look into them and study them, and through the testimonies of people as they talk about your grace in their lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. <coughs> Not many of you will probably recognize what this device is. Uh, for obvious purposes, uh, based on its appearance, it's called, its commercial name is called the Spider. What it actually is, it's a calibration device for computer monitors, especially LCD monitors. And these monitors need to be calibrated so that their graphics cards will display the colors that you might take in your digital camera or video camera as accurately as possible. And if for people who make photographic prints from digital cameras, it, you need to calibrate these monitors if you want the printed photograph to look like what you see on the monitor. Well, I picked up one of these during our holidays. I've been learning how to use them and looking forward to getting some better pictures. But I discovered something else. I discovered that certain types of monitors, especially these LCD monitors, drift over a period of time. And therefore, they need to be regularly recalibrated. And they suggest you do it approximately once a month. Now, those of us who are not particularly interested in photography or into it won't bother with these things. But as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me, though, that in, this, in another sense, all of us need this recalibration. We all have minds and hearts, and our hearts tend to drift over a period of time. And we need those hearts to be regularly recalibrated. Like when you use this device at the end of calibrating your monitor, it will show you two pictures. The picture before you calibrate and the picture after. And we need something like that to happen to our own hearts. We need our hearts to be shown that they do need recalibration and then to begin to move in the right direction as well. And our next stop on Highway 27, which is our study of First Peter, is very appropriately suited to do, or at least begin that work of both revealing the need for recalibration in our hearts and, and doing that. I call that particular text God's spider this morning in our lives. And it does it in a couple of ways. The key verses in First Peter are chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his holy name. It's entirely appropriate this morning that we have come to our study in First Peter on the annual International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, where we remember 200 million Christians around the world 
for whom these are very, very real current experiences. And you know, I have discovered, uh, as in these last 21 days, I have been on this journey of praying for the persecuted church through that little booklet that some of you, excuse me, through that little booklet that some of you picked up three weeks ago. I can think of hardly anything that is more effective in calibrating our hearts as to seriously engage with the plight of the persecuted church. As I said, we've been away on vacation for the last two and a half weeks or so. And so I had the privilege of every morning taking the first block of time every day to begin to focus on some aspect of the world where Christians are being persecuted. And as I prayed for them, And I saw their hearts, I saw mine more clearly. And I saw the difference in the two. And so while I began praying for them, I ended up praying for myself and my own heart as well. For example, on one day I read about an 11-year-old boy who when his parents found out that he had become a Christian, tied him to a tree for a whole day and then poured sugar all over his body so that the insects would come and be attracted to him and torment him. This was his own parents. Now, I, even today, I recoil when I come close to any kind of insect. When I, and I thought to myself, when I became a Christian at the age of 17, that's not the way my parents treated me, even though they weren't Christians. But I said, if they had, would I have survived? What about this young lad? Well, today he works with the Bible League, and he's a church planter. His faith survived that kind of a test. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I, I read about an 80-year-old pastor in Colombia whose throat one day was slit along with the treasurer of the church. And I thought to myself, my goodness, you could have excused that 80-year-old man for having thought about retirement 10 years earlier. And yet here at the age of 80, with no thought of retirement, he was choosing to remain and serve as a pastor in a very dangerous place. How can I as a pastor think about a man like that, pray about him, and not have the condition of my own heart revealed? So my heart has been being recalibrated thoroughly in the last 20 days or so. And for those of you who have been on that journey with us, because many of you picked up this booklet, I I know that you have been going through something like that. And that's good. Uh, It's serving its purpose. But the thing that particularly amazes me whenever I read about the testimony of the persecuted church, and you'll see this in your little insert as well, is what they ask us to do. They never ask us to pray that their persecution will end. You'll never hear that request. What they ask us to do instead is please pray that we will have strength to endure. And so we're going to do that tonight at 5 o'clock in room 101 downstairs. I'll just invite all three congregations to join us for an hour before we go to our modules in the evening where we're going to take some time to pray for the persecuted church. And First Peter will train us in that. Because after all, First Peter is God's word to a church that is being persecuted. And therefore, it serves as a very effective resource for us, fuel for our prayers. And whatever we learn from First Peter this morning will be fuel for our own prayer time this evening. And so, as you listen, listen with first that hat on. And then come and join us this evening at 5 o'clock to pray for the persecuted church. But then there's a second thing that First Peter is going to teach us. And that is, how do we live for God in a world that is hostile to God? You and I today are not being persecuted in the same way, but we're still living in a world that is largely and increasingly more hostile to God and especially to the evangelical faith. During this time of our recent holidays in the States, we were there not only on the election day, 
when, when Bush was elected. But we saw what happened in the next several days as we continued to watch the various talk shows and the news media. Amazed at the level and the intensity of the bitterness, resentment and even hatred against the large block of evangelicals who cast their vote. Even to the point where they're being vilified and called fascists. It is going to become, and it already is increasingly difficult for us to live as godly people in an ungodly world. And First Peter will also help us to answer that question, that though we are not yet being persecuted in that way, how will we live for God, or what will it take to live for God in a world that is increasingly hostile to God? So those are the two things that First Peter is going to teach us. You have all the details in the study guide. Let me just kind of give you a quick overview of the book as a whole. The key verses I've already told you uh, that we've read. The text itself divides very easily into four basic blocks. Peter begins by talking about their salvation and then their sanctification and then he talks about submission and then finally suffering. Those are the four broad divisions of First Peter. I'm going to give you some key verses from each section and a few brief comments and then we'll move on from there. First of all, part one, salvation. Here are some key verses from there. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The first thing Peter does when he speaks to a suffering church is to paint a vivid picture of the incredible, glorious inheritance that is awaiting them one day. And then he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. So the essence of Peter's argument is simply this. To the suffering church, he says, you have this amazing inheritance that is waiting for you. And by the way, that inheritance comes to you because of your faith in Christ. And when you persevere in the middle of suffering, that is God's way of showing you that your faith is genuine. Which means you can count on your inheritance. So that is the essence of his argument when he talks about salvation. Endurance in persecution guarantees that your faith is genuine. And because of that, you can absolutely, certainly count on this glorious inheritance that is awaiting you. He calls that the living hope. That's the essence of the first part that he uh, exhorts them. Then he says, in the second section, he starts talking about the kind of life they need to live, even as they are learning to endure. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But just as he called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Verse 22, a few verses later, he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Not only does he call them to be a holy community, he calls them to be a loving community. Why? Because the world outside is not loving them. He says the Christians are the only ones that are going to show love to one another. And then he caps it all in this identity statement. He said, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So even as you continue to uh, persevere under suffering and have your faith asserted as being genuine and can rejoice in this hope in the future, in the present, he says, Continue to live a holy lives, be a loving community, and in this way you will fulfill one essential calling of yours, and that is to be bridges between a world that is hostile to God 
and a God that is able to call such people out of darkness and into his light and change them. Now, Peter wrote to Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And part of Roman culture at that time was the emperor cult, where the prevailing Caesar was even worshipped. But Christians, because of their primary allegiance to Christ, would of course not be involved in this worship. And therefore, many people began to suspect them of being seditious and not really being good citizens. So naturally, in the third chapter, or the third part, Paul begins to, or Peter begins to talk about submission. He says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So let nobody, he says, charge you with being poor citizens just because you are good Christians. He then continues on to talk about other kinds of submission. Slaves, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. In the context of First Peter, the call to submit is with a view to testimony to unchurched people or unbelievers in mind. And then he continues in the same way in chapter 3. Wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And then he calls husbands to do the same thing. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now submission does not automatically mean obedience to everybody in authority over you. Because sometimes those who are in authority over us, even those instituted by God, can require us to do or behave in a way that is contrary to what Christ has asked us to. And our allegiance to Jesus always comes first. In those cases, says Peter, you will obey, obey Christ and therefore you will suffer trials and difficulties, which moves him naturally to the fourth part of the book, which is suffering. Salvation, sanctification, submission and suffering and these key verses we've read already let's read them again dear friends do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed so he picks up that theme again if you are insulted because of the name of christ you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of god rests on you however if you suffer as a christian do not be ashamed but praise god that you bear that name now, lest we make the mistake of thinking that these are just exhortations to be fulfilled in our own human strength, Paul sprinkles through, Peter sprinkles throughout this letter various uh, emphasis directing their attention to Christ's power and Christ's sufficiency. Because Christ has, first of all, suffered this way. He was sustained by the living hope. Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He submitted to those in authority. He lived a holy and a loving life. And he suffered. And so, the last kind of message that Peter has throughout the book is that we are strengthened in all of this by grace. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then he ends the book with a benediction focusing on the power of Christ. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. So that in a nutshell is the message of First Peter. 
as they continue to endure persecution, it is by thinking along these lines. It is by regularly coming to Jesus the living stone. They themselves being built up and strengthened in grace, they will endure. And they will fulfill their call to be this royal priesthood, a bridge between a holy God who is able to save people and human beings, men who are, and women who are lost and in fact living in hostility to God. That's how the church lives in between these two realities. Now, as I said, the study guide gives you lots more information. But for this morning, basically this text provides us a good framework to do the first specific practical response that we can take. And that is to join us at 5 o'clock this evening to pray for the persecuted church. Because they continue to plead with us and... Uh, we want to do that immediately in response. And the things that you have learned, we will work our way through each of the chapters in First Peter uh, and, and use it as fuel for our prayer. So if you're able to, please join us at 5 o'clock this evening. Now, as I said, there's a second question. The second question is, what does it have to say to you and me today who are not being persecuted? How do we live for God in a world that is ungodly? And as I grappled with this question, this is the one, the first part of the message came together easily. The second part was what I grappled with all week long. In order for us to live for God in an ungodly world, where do we as Rexdale Alliance Church, where do we as individuals, where do we as the church in North America desperately need this recalibration to begin? There are probably many answers to it, but one that emerged strongly from 1 Peter for me was recalibration at the level of our core identities, how we see ourselves. Identity is critically important. When we came back from our holidays, it was Wednesday night, about midnight when we got to the uh, airport here. And so there wasn't a long lineup at the immigration. So I walked in and I handed them my uh, citizenship cards. Well, she kind of looked at it curiously for a while, much longer than usual. And she said, do you have any other identification? I said, I've never been asked that before. So I happened to have my passport, so I gave my passport. She kind of looked at it and she smiled and she gave me back my citizenship card. She said, do you see what it says here? And in the box under sex, it said female. No wonder she wanted to check out the passport. And then she kind of wryly smiles and says, boy, if I had said the same thing, I wasn't going to say anything. You know. <laughs> For a short while, she was confused about my identity. I wasn't, but she was. <laughs> In this case, it was only humorous and it was very temporary and there were no eternal or long-term ramifications of it. But I'm quite aware of the fact that in this world there are some tormented souls who struggle very really with those kinds of things. Identity is a big thing. Let me come at it from a slightly different perspective. Another thing that's been happening in the States recently uh, is one of the three major newscasts, NBC nightly news anchor Tom Broker, is retiring after well over 20 years of service. And these, these three key nightly news in ABC, NBC and CBS are anchored by very, very significant people. And so transitions are important. And Tom Broca is going to be replaced by a man named Brian Williams. And so the newspapers are full of all these stories because apparently in NBC itself there are some people who are not very sure whether Williams is going to pull it off. And so there are many, many interviews. And we read one this morning, a few weeks, a few days ago uh, during breakfast. And I was intrigued by a response that Brian Williams made at one of these questions. Because the question was, are you concerned about the fact that some people within NBC are not quite sure whether they're going to like you? And he said, you know what, that kind of goes with the territory, you know, some people like some people, some others won't. He said, but you know what, I go home every night to my wife and to my children, and they like me. He said, and really, that's all that matters to me. 
Brian Williams was a man, at least in this context, whose core identity was much more shaped by his calling as a father and as a husband than by this significant replacement to this giant Tom Brokaw and how was he going to do. I suspect precisely because of that, he'll probably do a very good job because he doesn't care that much about the second. But what about you and me? We're not famous people. What is our core identity? How do we see ourselves? I don't know the answer, but it's a question you need to ask because how we see affects what we do and how we live. And I want to answer that question from First Peter because First Peter addresses the issue of identity very clearly. And I will use as a base text chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Three times in this, in this book, Peter will refer to the people as aliens and strangers. He says, part of your core identity involves seeing yourselves as strangers in this world. Basically, because of that, he says, don't be surprised if they don't like you. I mean, we know literally speaking, in most countries in the world, people don't like strangers. They can tolerate them as tourists for a while, especially if they're pumping money into the economy. But after that, they want them to go back home. The more people from a different nation begin to take up residence in our own countries, people get a little bit concerned. So he says, you're like strangers in this world. But you are very particular kinds of strangers. You're not just tourists. You're not just refugees. He says, you are here to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are more like a stranger who is an ambassador to a particular nation, who represents somebody else. And then Peter gets to the heart of it. He says, you are a chosen people, you are a holy nation, and you are a royal priesthood. And the thing that struck, strikes us about all of them is, they are all collective, not individual. You see, when a country sends an ambassador, they don't send five ambassadors. You don't have five Canadian ambassadors to a particular country, you have one. But when it comes to being ambassadors for Jesus, in this world that is hostile to God, Peter says, you are not individually ambassadors, you are collectively ambassadors. Your fundamental identity is collective, not individual. Which means in order to live for God in a world that is largely hostile to God, we need to begin to see ourselves in this way. So let me ask you a question. Is this the dominant metaphor? Is this the primary glasses, if you will, through which you see yourself? Or is it through an individual identity? CEO of a company or some other title related to your work? Or is it as a parent who has certain dreams, aspirations and desires for your children and that becomes your reason or your primary mode of thinking of yourselves? In my case, is it senior pastor of a church? Or is it through your hobby or your sports as a photographer or a hockey player? Or as last night one candidate for being baptized said, who saw herself initially as an opera singer. How do you see yourself? And specifically... Specifically here in this church, when you see somebody else in Rexdale Alliance Church, do you particularly see them and yourselves as part of a holy priesthood? 
My youngest brother-in-law is a medical doctor. And he, in his recreation time, was used to coach a um, kids' baseball team when his sons were playing on it. And sometimes the parents would get involved in the game. And one time, one of the other guys, fathers, who was a Jewish man, when he was trying to catch a fly ball, all of a sudden he began to see double. Knowing my brother-in-law was a doctor, he started chatting with him. And uh, one thing led to another, and they discovered that he actually had a brain tumor that needed a very important uh, operation. My brother-in-law was able to use his contacts and put him in touch with probably one of the best brain surgeons for this kind of work in, in New York, in a hospital. And that surgeon was also Jewish. And on the day when, he was, when this man was being wheeled into the surgery, he kind of looked up nervously at the doctor and said, do a good job, will you? He said, of course we will. We go back 5,000 years, don't we? That's corporate identity. And so let me ask you the question again. Is that how you and I see ourselves in Rexdale Alliance Church when you think of other Christians, somebody who might be in need of something that you can give to them? And we'll come to the specifics in a minute. Is that our fundamental identity to see ourselves as a royal priesthood? Because we go back 2,000 years to the foot of the cross. If we did, we will see ourselves as a holy royal priesthood. Now what do priests do? Let me just suggest two or three things and we'll move on. First of all, as priests, we pray for our suffering brothers and sisters. 200 million Christians around the world may not be suffering brain tumors, but they are suffering severe, excruciating pain in many cases. One of the stories that really gripped me was when I read about um, prisoners in China who are not only persecuted by the government, but some other cults as well, who were taken out in the middle of the night in winter, stripped completely, doused with ice-cold water, and then beaten with rubber hoses, men 50 times and women 30 times, to make them deny their faith. Now, can you read about a brother or a sister going through that and not respond to their cry and be priests on their behalf and pray when all they want you to do is please pray that I might endure and not deny my faith? And so as priests, we will show up tonight and other times as the Holy Spirit brings you to mind, we'll learn how to pray and we will pray for them. Closer to home, royal priesthood continue to serve one another through the use of their gifts for Paul writes in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 8 to 11 Peter writes sorry above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins offer hospitality to one another without grumbling using your homes and your resources to bless people each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms we don't all do it the same way. We are all made differently. And so we use whatever God gifts God has given to us to bless one another. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. And I do. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Rearranging chairs and cleaning up after Alpha, whatever it is. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing priests do. They serve one another right here. They pray for their suffering brothers and sisters who are in pain. They pray for, they serve one another right here. And then thirdly, they also bless the world. For in chapter 3 verse 9, Peter writes, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So when Christians are being persecuted by non-Christians, others, or here in North America when the backlash against evangelicals is what it is, how should we respond? If we see our primary identity as a royal priesthood who have been 
called to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light, we will not respond in the same way. We will not say, well, how can we get back at them? Instead, we will say, how can we function as priests? And priests function in two ways. The Latin word for priest is pontifex, which means a bridge. Priests are a bridge between people and God, which means they represent people to God and they represent God to the people. And the way we represent the ungodly world to God is by praying that God will exercise his great power and might in calling them out of darkness so that they can become part of us. Not that he would just smash them with judgment, although he would do that for some, but that's up to him. We're called instead to pray that God in his mighty power will call them because he's able to call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we not only pray for the persecuted, we pray for the persecutors as well. And at least two stories in these 21 days again encourage my heart. Because just like Saul of Tarsus, two of the most extreme persecutors themselves became followers of Christ. So those things are happening today and we can pray confidently. The second half of it is how we represent God to the lost, to the ungodly, to the godless. And he says by being a blessing to them. And if we see ourselves as a community of royal priests, we will look for opportunities to bless. One of the things that I have discovered, especially in the last six or seven years, and it began on my first sabbatical, and it hasn't stopped, is the realization of how few people in this world know what it is to be blessed. And how few of them have been blessed. And yet we, as royal priests in Jesus' name, have the incredible opportunity to bless people who are at present maybe even hostile to God. Martin Sanders, a professor and former pastor, was here several years, a couple of years ago, I think, teaching a seminar on a Saturday morning. And he told a story uh, which illustrates this power. When he was in seminary, he was taking extra jobs to pay his way through school. And he was working the graveyard shift in a grocery store where basically his job was to fold all these big massive cardboard cartons and stack them all up, you know. And there was a machine that did all of this and he didn't know how to run the machine. It broke down. And so he had to find out how to get it fixed. And so he said there was this one 19-year-old kid who was working there and he, his external appearance wasn't exactly one to inspire much confidence. But anyway, he went and talked to this guy who was the only other guy around and he learned how, told him how to operate the machine. And so as Sanders was walking away, he said, God bless you. And he walked away. It was basically a conversation piece. That's all it was. Well, he had no idea what was going to happen because the next day this fellow came to him and he had tears in his eyes. He said, you're a priest and you blessed me. That's not happened before. Thank you so much. Two days later, he brought his mother and he brought his sister and he said, please bless them. And he told them, this priest blessed me, bless them. And so he did. And I've forgotten the rest of the story. Now, the point of the matter is all that came about from an unthinking, casual, tossed-off blessing. What do you think will happen if Christians see themselves as royal priests who wait upon God and come charged with blessings to be able to bless unchurched people? Just the ones that cross your path in your neighborhood, in your work, in your home, in your community. We have the incredible privilege of doing that, but we will only do it if we see ourselves as a community of royal priests, a holy nation, a chosen people who have been called to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous. So what I've done here is I've taken some verses from First Peter and written an identity statement for us. Let's read it together. We'll do it twice. First to get the feel for the words and then secondly we'll read it. 
Okay? We are God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Toronto, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. We, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a holy chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's our identity. That's who we are. That's where the calibration, recalibration needs to begin. And before we read it through once again, I want to speak specifically to the three people who are being baptized. As you get into that water and come out of it, you know, in in most places in the world where Christians are being persecuted, the persecution doesn't start when they become followers of Christ. The persecution starts when they take an open stance publicly. And in most cases, it is through baptism. And so today, as you get baptized, as you come out of that water, I would encourage you to conceive of yourself as saying, hey, I'm exchanging my old identity, whatever it is, for this new one. So let's read it through again. We are God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Toronto, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. We, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God Through Jesus Christ. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. May it be so. And for the rest of the service, we're just going to continue to act out and do various dimensions of being mutual priests to one another. Now, have the ushers come forward right now to receive the offering. And then we'll have a special announcement that deals with a very particular way of blessing the less fortunate in our community. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we stand here before we thank you for reminding us who we are. You are our high priest. We learned that in the book of Hebrews two weeks ago. And we are priests together with you. Thank you that we are a community of royal priests, Father. To serve and bless one another and to serve and bless an ungodly word no matter what they do to us or what they say about us. Thank you for this very practical way in which we can continue to bless one another through these resources. We trust that you will use them, Father, for the extension of your kingdom in our hearts, in this community, and to the uttermost corners of the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. As I was sitting here last night and... Um, asking the Lord for the benediction. Here was a picture that came to my mind. I want you to imagine just taking out your own identity card. And I don't know what identity is written on it. Maybe one of those many individual things that we talked about. Hand it over to God right now. And receive back from Him another identity card. With royal priesthood written on it. And then just go and in Jesus' name and in his strength, be priests to one another and to a world that is hostile to God. Go in Jesus' name.